HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today, I, I don't think you need much explanation being one of Time's 100 most influential people in the world right now, but Barbara Lynch is, is kind of the doyenne, the, the nouveau <laughs> Julia Child of Boston, and I've had the pleasure of knowing you for a good portion of my life. Uh, God, I love you. You start out <laughs> with, like, my favorite Julia. I, but it, it's true, you know, not having known Julia, but hearing kind of the, the, the accolades about her... Mm. Um, I use those same references about you because of what you've done for people and how you've not only built careers, but built compassion within the culinary community mm. in Boston and, you know, bigger than that. But I, I want to talk about this book that you have out, Out of Line. It's a, a life playing with fire. And though it's a memoir, um, it's a lot more than that. It, it's kind of the tenets of how to be the person you want to be. And I want to start in Saudi, as you did, and talk to me about what kind of life you had there, your parents, your siblings, and what food meant to you and them? I had a great life. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had a, um, well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. I'm so proud of you. Like, I'm like sitting in your office. <laughs> this is, you know, in Brooklyn. This is great. Yeah, this you, happened because of you. No, it came a long way, Michael. Thank this you. is awesome. And a big shout out to Car Chef Carlos. Oh yeah, at Roberta's. Yeah, I'm so full, and it was <laughs> the most amazing lunch I just had. He, and I'm I'm grateful. So that was really amazing. Uh, South Boston. <clears throat> um, I wouldn't change it for the world. Where how I grew up and where I grew up. Um, it, it you know I humble background seven six kids. My mom was single. She was widowed. Uh, my father died a month before I was born, um, and 
it was like a blue-collar neighborhood, uh, mostly Irish. Basil was exotic where I grew up. <laughs> and um, my, she was a very busy woman. And uh, so, you know, basically I, I had zero discipline and uh, I hated school. Only because uh, it was mostly... Um, high school was like... Uh, uh, I was, it was in the forced busing uh, era in Southie. Uh, in Boston, actually, it was like um, in the in the seventies. It was the height of forced busing. But then I also realized I didn't like school either. As a uh, in in kindergarten and uh, early on middle school, wasn't a big fan. So uh, in this book, you proclaim about lying and cheating and stealing. I was so good at it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I love that some of those stories were to feed yourself and not just you know, out of starvation or necessity, but out of pleasure. Um, you went canning, and explain what that is around the neighborhood just to get some fried clam strips. I'm really amazed that people in the world don't know what canning is. Like, I think it's um, different, I guess, everywhere. Canning, like, with a with a whip. <laughs> I think that's caning. Oh, that's caning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. This is my accent. No, can- canning is, uh, you know, um, you put, uh, you take a, sh- well, was Budweiser really? You slice the, you know, you take the top off the the, the switch thing or whatever, the flip, and then you put a, a bigger hole in it so that coins could fl- fit through. And I put craft paper around, and we said, uh, uh, "Mary Ellen McCormick Housing Project banned." So we we went door to door asking people to donate for um, some uniforms for the band that we were starting for Boston Mary Ellen McCormick Housing Project band. Yeah, starting. Starting. (laughs) Soon to be. Um, And so we were collecting money to go have uh, the fried clams at Hojo's, which I really loved. And I got my friends to do it with me um, so we could have, like, probably a week's worth of clams in one day. And uh, right towards the end, I mean, our cans were full, and uh, my neighbor called and said... uh, Big Barber, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know your daughter uh, was uh, knew how to play an instrument and starting a band. And my mother said, she does not know how to fucking play an instrument, and she's not starting a band. <laughs> uh, so my mother waited till I got home. You know, we hid the cans with all the money, and I uh, went home to change. And uh, she's like, "Where were you all day?" And I said, "Oh, you know, out playing." Uh, Red Rover, Red Rover, call your mother right over. This is a game we used to play. And she's like, really? Were you out? Didn't, where's your money? And I said, what money? And then she knew, and I knew I can't lie to her. And she said, were you out collecting money for a band? And I was like, yeah. You know, and then I had to return it all. And I was like, but mom, Diane Ben is going to eat all the fried clams at Hojo's. There's never going to be enough left for me. She's like, I don't care. You're on, you know, like you're on punishment. You're gonna have to stay home, and blah blah blah. And that's how that ended. I mean, but what was it about those clams that made you concoct this whole? For some reason, those fine clams were good. They were the necks only, not the bellies. And then, lo and behold, later on in my life, I I meet Jacques Pepin, and Jacques tells me this whole story, how he developed the fried clams for Hojo's by having these really ugly mud uh, blood clams, they're called. They're extinct now, but they were huge blood clams that he used to put the, the bread slicer 
a bread slicer. And so that's how they came up with the strips. And then he came up with this breading and uh, flash fry and then freeze, too. So then, uh, And then they were in the frozen market as well. I mean, d- did you know anything about Jacques Pepin at the time? Did you know anything about Julia Child when you were out there canning for clams? No, not a clue. So it's kind of wild how big <laughs> of an influence these chefs, uh, right. French technique, would be in your life. Later on, I know. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That's fate, right? Yeah, and uh, nothing past Italy, either wise. Uh, I probably couldn't even pronounce Jacques <laughs> at the time. I mean, leisure peas, I was calling, no, like, I lesser peas in that little silver can. Yeah. I was like, Mom, are we going to have those leisure peas? <laughs> I, I love the idea of leisure peas. I eat peas at my, my leisure all the right. time. Leisure. But Italy, too. Right. Um, you, you said basil was exotic in your neighborhood, mm-hmm. yet something made you make a pesto for you and your friends in, what, elementary school? Uh, no, my uh, one of my best friends was 13, and she was actually in AA at 13. So uh, I, I don't know. I probably found a Bon Appetit magazine. Certainly my mother wasn't reading it. Because uh, she was reading good housekeeping, uh, but I, I probably found it in like uh, one of her AA meetings or something like that. But I did. I found a, a pesto recipe. Um, actually, I probably found it in Life, one of the magazines my culinary school teacher gave me. And uh, so I went to the North End to go buy the ingredients, um, and. Uh, they had fresh basil and pine nuts and Parmesan cheese. So pine nuts were super expensive. Uh, so I stole them and uh, made the pine, you know, made the pesto sauce. And they actually had fresh garlic. My mother used garlic powder, basil powder, and that wasn't going to cut it. Yeah. So. I, I, I'd love to be able to explore what your mom's pantry looks like versus yours now. It was McCormick dried spices. All McCormick All dried McCormick. spices. So... You know, obviously, you are, are, are not your mother's daughter in the sense that you have a different pantry. You have a different appreciation for food. Mm-hmm. And having that at a young age, you know, these kind of immaculate fried clams and this, this beautiful green pesto. She had basil. I know she had uh, like um, Bailey's Hummels in the <laughs> anything that, you know, if you buy, if you bought a lot of plates at Flanagan's or a lot of groceries at Flanagan's, you'd get like um, the Bailey's Irish coffee mugs and free plates and one good stick knife. Did you have that? No. Oh, no. Awesome. I, Jewish guy from New York. <laughs> we, we got the Haggadahs in the Maxwell House coffee. All right. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, going back to your mother's pantry versus yours, um, it seemed like a lot of your life uh, was about flavor rather than I'm getting out of here and cooking is my way out. Yeah, no, no. It was about, um, probably, I was a curious kid, experimenting and finding it out. Like, you know, basil was exotic. I need to find out where to get it and try it. Then what was it about cooking for priests, cleaning pans for them, that led you even further into food? Well, there was a mission to that madness, I think. Um, You know, well, wow, they had a stocked refrigerator freezer all the time, so... I could kind of learn how to cook there, and not only that, I could. They put me to work on uh, collecting, you know, during the mass with the long baskets. So I'd have to separate the cash from the checks, and I'd be like, "Oh, a little cash for me." Here's checks go in the other basket. 
Oh, God, help me. You know, it's <laughs> how many times have you said that in your life? Oh, my God. I still say it now every day. Because I know going back to this pesto again, years later, you went back and apologized and even paid for those. Yes, pine nuts. I did. Yeah. And, and I give to the church now. I still give to Catholic charities. I think I've paid up now. Yeah. yeah. But while working for those priests, they always ask you to come to mass. W- was there religion in your life? Was there some kind of tenet of something yeah, yeah. that drove you to do something? Yeah. I, I, at one point, I think I, I did want to be a nun at one point. And I think that's while I was working for the priests. And, and Father Quinn would say, now, Barbara, do you think you'd ever, ever want to go to church there? And I'd say, now, Father, why? You know, I really don't want the church to collapse now. I don't think it's necessary. I go to church. I say my prayers every night, you know, and they'd laugh at me. Um, I do believe in God heavily. Uh, I just, I don't believe in the business of, of the church, but I do, and I always will believe in God, a God. And I believe he's been with me my whole life. Um, and I loved cooking for those guys because there's three priests. They're all different, uh, and they were, they were fun, but crazy, crazy fun. So the kitchen was kind of your church. <clears throat> Kitchen is my, yeah, it is my church. I mean, there was your time at Soda Shack making steak and cheese subs. You read the book. <laughs> I read the book. You read the book. I mean, I know you, but I also read the book because it's <laughs> fascinating. I never know how to pronounce this. The guys steak. from the Rabbit Inn, Lynch, Lynch, I want my black and white frap. Put fucking five yolks in it and don't, and don't put anything less than five yolks. I'm like, oh, that's just gross. But I think that shows in your food now, too, the particularities and, and service, Yeah, you know, reading your customer and making the food that they want to eat. Right. And it's, it can start with steak and cheese. I love a good steak and cheese. I mean, who doesn't like, like, I love it when you go to Philly and they're like, no, you have to go here for the best Philly steak and cheese. I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'll go. All right, let's try it. You know, I mean, that's the pride of everywhere. Like, you, you know, you have to have this pizza, Right. Roberta's Pizza. I'm like, okay, let's go. I gotta have it. I mean, that's what... It comes from the heart. That's like, this guy is cooking his heart out, and that's... It was delicious pizza. It's great. Yeah, and it can be that baseline, because uh, I never know how to pronounce Boltoff's... Boltoff's St. Batolf. Batolf's Club. You know, that that was a shift away from making steak and cheese, because you're dealing with a different clientele, almost the Boston Brahmin. Oh, yeah. So how do you kind of sate both classes right we have steak and cheese on this side which is like what two miles away and then you have a uh, dover sole table side or sweet breads under a bell i'm like and I'm, we're not talking portuguese sweet bread like the bread bread i'm like wow you know think about it i was 14 15 a kid from the projects serving dover sole under like dover sole table side or a lescoffier dinner with white gloves on. I mean, I was pretty lucky, I guess, you know, to see it. Yeah. But I think I went through the same thing, too. It's it's kind of uncontextualized <clears throat> until you get to travel the world and see where these recipes come from. Yeah. Because I was lucky enough to be 19 when you let me into your kitchen. Yeah. And I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't expect anything. I didn't know what I was going to see. Mm-hmm. Um, I could have been blown away by it, but I didn't even have a reference point for half of it. Yeah. Seeing prune stuffed gnocchi with foie gras and Vincento glaze, yeah. those words and ingredients were foreign to me until I went to the place they came from. That's so funny. Yeah, I never thought of that. Yeah, I guess like a reference point. You don't, when you don't have a reference point, it's kind of a blank slate. 
and I've always used the blank slate to fill it in. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, I know you cooked in Martha's Vineyard, and I forget <clears throat> who in the book told you, well, make me a damn good chowder. <laughs> it's almost... I lied. Yeah, I, it's I was like, oh, I'm making, <laughs> I'm making quahog chowder. I didn't even know what a quahog was, but, but it, I think it's bigger than a clam. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that a funny expectation, <laughs> right? though, that being from Boston, you should know how to make New England clam chowder? Right. Well, you should, but it... It usually comes from a can, like a Cisco truck in a can, and that's exactly what I was making for the the job I had that I quit. I was like, I can make chowder. If you know, I don't want to open a can. I mean, anybody can open a can. I want to make chowder. How would you make chowder now? Um, with bacon and leeks and potatoes, and you puree half of it, and then you steam clams on the side, and then you pour all the clam juice in the chowder. And then you chop up the clams and add half. Um, and that's about it. I think uh, I'd probably make my own, like, little oyster crackers. Probably make your own. I know you would make your I own. I would. <laughs> <laughs> but can you still appreciate that canned clam chowder from your childhood? I would have to doctor it up no yeah. matter what. Yeah. So, but if I'm in a hurry, I'm, I'm going to doctor it up no matter what. So when, when did that separation happen? Was it going to Italy for the first time? Was it traveling other places abroad or being in specific kitchens with specific chefs? No, I would say doctoring anything from a can probably started when I was like 13, 14. Yeah? Yeah. And what was it? I don't know, pure fucking determination of like, yeah, I'm going to make it better. You know, I, I, that's just me. Like, um, like even like marinara sauce. Sometimes it's too much of that dried chemical spices or, like, I'd water it down and then add water and then cook it down more and then add olive oil, like really good olive oil to it. Um, you know, just doctor it up a little bit. I even do it with Uncrustables. <laughs> but I, I love that you said water it down because what you do isn't watered down at all. But you do make everything better. Well, yeah. I, you know, you could, I used to feel like I was like a shortcut kid, you know, like that would feel kind of shortcut-ish, you know, but hey, when you're in an emergency, like, oh, you know, you have to make it work, right? Like if somebody screwed up potato and yucky in your catering, well, Jesus Christ, go to the store, get me Hungry Jacks, not the flakes, like the fine grind instant potatoes, and I'll make them out of that. You know, you have to make you have to make some stuff work, <clears throat> and and actually, instant mashed like those instant hungry jacks can really make good yunky in a hurry. Well, we're gonna take a quick break. You have to make things work. We'll be right back with Barbara Lynch. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mike Calameco, host of Food Talk on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm here with Bob Moore, founder of Bob's Red Mill, as well as Ray and Tom Williams, who've worked with Bob for years and co-own an organic farm in eastern Oregon and Washington. Ray, Tom, why is organic farming so important to your family? It's all a matter of the soil is a source of nutrients. You increase organic matter of the soil, you increase the water holding capacity, water is becoming increasingly scarce. So in terms of sustainability, we don't think it's the only answer, but it's one answer, and it's the answer that we're trying to pursue. 
it's been a challenge and it's been fun because it, it is different and we're learning how to do it for the last 10 plus years. We're not just doing organic, we're doing organic to high standards. Bob, why did you choose to partner with Ray and Tom? Oh, goodness. Well, because they're the best farmers in Oregon, and they're close, and they have a bunch of acres, I think about 10,000, over in in eastern Oregon and Washington. They're wonderful farmers, and their family have been farmers over there uh, for many, many years. It's really important that you have long-term relationships, and we've enjoyed a long-term relationship with Bob's because there are a lot of challenges to organic farming. You simply don't have as many tools as a conventional farmer, and so you have to rely on longer-term solutions. Knowing that you have a market is absolutely critical. The margins in farming are not that great, so if you grow the stuff and you can't sell it, you have a real problem. And we know with Bob's that we have a market, and uh, We turn out high-quality grains, and they buy them, and it all works well. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. And welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell, here with Barbara Lynch. We were talking about making things better, uh, doctoring up canned food, but also finding the pure pleasures in life um, purely from flavor rather than necessity. And, you know, Italy was such a poignant thing in your life, traveling there for the first time uh, with a co-worker of yours, Sarah Jenkins. Yeah, yeah. Well, she was there already, and I was to meet her there. And that was interesting because um, I didn't, I, I, you know, I, I've, I've never really traveled out of um, South Boston at that at that time and uh i you know my mother i just took all whatever 210 dollars out of my salty savings account and uh um and i borrowed uh two friends lent me their credit cards just in case um i needed some money and um i thought everything was going to be in english when i got over there and we're talking like way before cell phones and uh way before atm Machines, so uh, and of course, I, I didn't really spell anything correctly in Italian, never mind English. So, um, La Cusa, so I, I knew I had to get to uh, Milano and the train station and the biggest train station in the world, one of them. And I spelled La Cusa wrong, not like L A C H I U S A, it was like La Cusa, C U Z A. I couldn't figure it out. It was like, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so screwed right now. Didn't know a word of uh, Italian, and I was so shy and insecure that I couldn't even go up to the person and ask them. So I was stuck in a train station all day. I found Kinder Eggs, though, the real Kinder (laughs) Eggs, (laughs) the real ones from Germany that took a long time to put together. Um, And her brother Nikolai was to meet me, and we just couldn't find each other until about like seven o'clock at night so eight in the morning till seven o'clock at night and like right before like around 6 p.m i heard english and this girl was from london finally i was like can you help me uh, i'm supposed to meet somebody and i can't find him um she's like well come on then come with me let's go we're going to a motley crew concert and like chances are you'll probably have to sleep at a 
like at a nun's dormitory or whatever it was, right? And I was like, all right then, all right, okay. And then, boom, like half an hour later, Nikolai, who looked like Harry Potter back then, it's like, fucking Barbara, where have you been? And then, whew, like I can't imagine if I didn't find him what it would have been like the rest of the trip. Well, if you didn't find them, you might not have met Mita. And you might not have met that gnocchi that changed everybody's life. The Bolognese, first of all. She taught me how to make Bolognese. She uh, taught me how to make gnocchi to cool the potatoes down. Uh, She taught me how to skin a rabbit. She taught me how to uh, braise rabbit. Actually, I made rabbit last night with strozzapretti and green olives and rosemary. Um, yeah, she taught me how to make marinara. Um, yeah, that bolognese sauce is killer. Mm-hmm. Lots of chicken livers and sage. Sounds like uh, I can taste it now. Oh, it's so great, yeah. right? Yeah, I love Mita and Bruno. I mean, they were incredible. Um, and that trip just, wow, it just opened my eyes. And then, like, you know, even the taxi ride that uh, Nikolai and I had to take when we landed um, in Cortona... And then we had to reach the little, little town of Teverina. We took a little taxi, and the taxi driver's wife was a chef as well, and she wrote a small little Italian cookbook, and she invited us to dinner on the following Sunday, or the Sunday that was coming up, and to grab wild fennel pollen um, on the way over, to grab all the wild fennel pollen on the mountains for her tacchino, for her roasted turkey. And that just blew me away. How nice they were and how great the family was and how amazing that it was not a chaotic family or somebody wasn't knocking on your door uh, looking for Beth Lynch. And they thought I was Beth Lynch uh, and to get money because I owed them money for heroin. I was like, well, that's not going to happen here. Wow, this is cool. But they were worried, you know, like just about what's for Sunday dinner. And that we were all going to sit there and eat a wonderful, like, family meal and love it. And, like, all about uh, what the Nona makes in the kitchen or what the mother makes and how the ravioli is going to taste. Unbelievable. So that changed my life. You know what's amazing? Uh, having been to and been in Number 9 Park as many times as I have, y- you walk through the commons or Beacon Hill and... You know, you don't have wild fennel growing on the hilltops, <laughs> but you've somehow turned what is a white linen, a white tablecloth restaurant into like going to somebody's house for family meal. Yeah. But we had the Seven Eleven garden. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. That little patch of, <laughs> were you there when, um, um, oh my gosh, I forget his name. Sorry. But he was our valet who used to come in with his white t-shirt and the marble wrapped up, um, PJ, PJ, and he'd take care of the Seven Eleven garden. He put herbs in. He was the cutest guy, and he wanted to have a little garden. We made, and we, I was like, okay, let's have that. We <laughs> called it Seven Eleven because at night, like, I don't know what happened at night, but. <laughs> but how did how did you make that little corner of Boston? You know, steps away from the golden domed mm. state house of Massachusetts, seem transportive because, um, you know. Uh, everyone told me it wouldn't work because that building um, had no windows um, and it was a shoe store and it was all that faux pink marble and they're like, oh, that'll never work. It's been it's been a diner, it was a shoe store, it was this, it was that. 
that'll never work. And I loved hearing that because then I knew it would work. Um, and it was, a, it was I, you know, it was great. And I knew I wanted um, not to do, like, huge bowls of pasta. And I wanted it to be French and Italian because um, I mastered Italian, I think, after 10, 10, 12 years. And I really wanted to learn uh, technique, French technique, which I wasn't taught really by taught English. But um, I wanted refinement of Italian food, mostly. Um, and I knew I wanted fine dining, but not... Um, ostentatious fine dining and um, I wanted everybody to feel really great when they walked in the door like equal and um, and it worked it's it's to, to this day I shouldn't have a favorite restaurant but that's my favorite restaurant oh it's yeah it's still <clears throat> mine too because like you said you walk in and you feel accepted yeah and I did that as a 19 year old 20 year old yeah no you didn't know who I was. You didn't know what I could do or what I was hoping to do with my life. I'll never forget when you yeah. walked in the door with a big camera hanging. You were so cute. I'm <laughs> like, oh, my God. It's like you, uh, you know, you could have been working for, like, Rolling Stones magazine. Like, I loved your um, uh, per- persistence and how you, like, knocked on doors. And I loved your love for food. Right away. You know, it, it happened because of a, a community in Boston that was so accepting of, mm. you know, having not an outsider, but just somebody thinking a different way in. Yeah. And, you know, what was supposed to be a semester long project for me ended up <laughs> being three, three and a half years in your kitchen. And I'll, you know, I'll never forget it. But you kept in touch. And and then are you married yet? Or? Oh, yeah. 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 So yeah I, got, I got the ring on. You got the ring on. <laughs> And and then, you know, and your wife worked for Food and Wine, and you've kept in touch, and I've watched you grow, and I, and I don't know. I think it's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've watched you grow, and I, I was there at a interesting juncture of your life. Um, the South End started proliferating with B&G oh, yeah, Oysters, yeah. the butcher <laughs> shop. Um, you were having your first child, Marquesa. Right. I remember her being in a car seat, uh, you know, being dropped off at number nine park and every once in a while i'd be told just watch her for a second <laughs> <laughs> yeah make sure she doesn't crawl out get out of there right? yeah yeah but you only had one restaurant prior to you know proliferating the south end uh-huh. and moving into fort point mm. do you miss having one restaurant or what does it mean to you to have built an empire yeah um yeah i know right mini empire serial entrepreneur i don't know i had to google all that crap <laughs> but um no, I feel like um, I'm a part of, like, you know, I liked putting, I, I don't know, I mean, I, no, I don't miss one restaurant, you know, sometimes I just, no, I I plan on having a really good uh, retirement restaurant someday, where I can open when I want and close when I want. I'll never stop cooking, but um, no, I'm not, I'm happy with having what I have. Uh, I, I think it created great opportunities for us to grow within, and we're still growing. Um, I enjoy uh, uh, giving people the tools to succeed and then seeing them go off and be be their stars that they should be, hopefully. Um, no, so I'm happy. I'm glad I did more than one. Seriously. Yeah, well, it also gives you the opportunity to 
be what you're amazing at, which is a mentor. Ah, oh, thank and you. And in doing so, I mean, first female to win two James Beard Awards, the... I never know how to say this this way uh, as well. <laughs> Relais Chateau. Relais. Relais Chateau. And Chateau. Um, yeah. Well, what I'm, you've done for Boston is, is put it on the culinary map, but at the same time, you've built a brigade of wonderful cooks and people there. How, how do you foster talent and how do you um, keep them in your network, in your neighborhood? You treat them with dignity um, first. Uh, employees are first, customers are second, I think, um, and set them up to succeed, seriously. Uh, hire people with passion, mostly, and, um, and, and literally find out what their goals are in the beginning. Where do you want to be? What's your five-year goal, ten-year goal? Um, if, they're, if they don't know, that's okay, but do you have a vision? And what's your favorite cuisine to cook? And, and then... And then um, just you know, you gotta watch out for them and really keep in touch with them uh, during their longevity longevity of the company. And no matter what, even though you have an HR department, you know, really check in and see how they're doing. From dishwasher, line cook to reservationist, it's really important. Um, and the fact that we do grow continuously, or we try to keep growing, um, we like to check in all the time with our employees and make sure they're happy. And if not, let us know. Because if, if you don't ask for something, um, uh, there's, n there's really no way I'll know what's next for you. Or as you grow, like say we have 380 to 420 employees, you know, you, if there's something you want to, if you're done learning in a certain area of the company and you want to try something else and you want to grow in another area, uh, it's good that your manager knows or, you know, somebody knows it. You know, you're, you've been referred to as a female chef, and <laughs> obviously you are. <laughs> um, but what, do, what does that classification mean to you now? And how do you support women within the industry? Well, you know, I have a hard time with the one, that, that female chef thing, because I, I feel like um, it would be awesome if we were just a chef, Right. Because I think, ugh, you know, I just had, I've had enough discrimination in my life in terms of the forced busing thing and da 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 da. Um, that if we keep continuing this discussion about female male, again, you're, gonna, you're just going to live through discrimination longer. Uh, women, uh, I know it's, it's hard because I think that it's there. Um, but it's, it should go away, really, um, for us to live in a better world. It's like war, right? So what is war? It's usually generally like power. And it's religion. But it's not really religion because it's the power of the religion of a church or the business of. People are all the same. We care. We do care. And we do care of a religion, but not really the business of it or the dictatorship of it. Women are strong. Men are strong. There are weak men. And there are weak women. Fuck, man. We're all the same. We can, you know... But if you're going to categorize it, then discrimination's going to last forever. When you 
cook for people, do you think about your clientele as to whether or not they're a man or a woman or of a certain caste or race or religion? Or do you cook for everyone the same? Everyone's, I cook for everyone. Because if I was going to cook for me and what I like, you'd be eating peanut butter and jelly one week all day every day or tuna for sandwiches all day every day. Like, I cook for what I think people are going to want to eat. Like, I don't like anchovies. And I, I can't eat octopus because I read the book The Soul of an Octopus, and they're brilliant. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, there's certain things I really don't want to eat, but I'll cook them, and I know you'll love this dish. No, so I cook, for, I cook f- to make you happy and to make my customers happy uh, and nurture, yeah. But that never feels like a sacrifice to you. Oh, God, no. <clears throat> no. The more the merrier. Like, no, doesn't, I'm not sacrificing anything. Yeah. No. You know, the back of the book has a great little recipe section. Irish soda bread. Little. <laughs> Lamb and yogurt, focaccia, roast pork with fig sauce. Why these recipes and what do they mean to you? Um, Irish soda bread. Oh, my God. It's still the little best Irish soda bread. Um, I learned how to make it at the harvest. Uh, vanilla bread pudding and really stick to the recipe is the best vanilla bread pudding you'll ever eat um, and I make it for the you know the lynches a lot of us um, and they love it so I love it I made it for Vetri last week he's like oh my god get this away from me <laughs> um, what else is in there oh lamb fondue like a lot of these dishes are good home cooking easy simple Stuff I love. It sounds like it's stuff you not only love to eat, but obviously serve people. Um, how do you cook for your family now? Oh, what do you cook for your family? How does oh, that change over the years? Not really. It's simple. Um, stuff like that. Simple, really. But I still make fresh pasta pretty much every day. Well, not every day. Like every third day. Uh, roast chicken. Maybe a lot of salads. I cook a lot of Indian food, too. Or Nepalese food. And um, now in Gloucester, I cook a lot of seafood. Yeah. Yeah. So where do you want to be in the world right now? Who do you want to be? Or are you already that person? I just want to be with you, man. (laughs) Hanging out. (laughs) Hanging out here in your office. This is cool. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, reading a memoir like this, it's enlightening. It's heart-wrenching. Um, do you feel like a weight's kind of been lifted by being able to say all this? Because uh-huh. during the break, we were discussing about how you know, people know you as Chef Barbara Lynch. Mm-hmm. Who do you want to be known as today? I know they think I'm really mean. and like I really... find nothing but, truthfully, like <laughs> one of the most nurturing people I've ever met. Um, yeah. it, but you and I know each other. Yeah. Not like, you know, know each other, but I mean, you know, deeply, but... Uh, no, we know each other. Um, yeah, but most of my colleagues think I'm tough badass, but I'm really a nice person. I mean, I'm softy. I could cry, like, on commercials. <laughs> right? I have a heart. Yeah, yeah. Well, what food makes you cry? Oh, fucking simple food. Like, beautiful food. Just simple. Like, this unbelievable green tomato salad I just had that was... Oh, I don't know. Like charred green tomatoes and then very thinly sliced tomatoes on top. Beautiful. 
uh, right amount of vinegar and olive oil and I don't know. And even the server was like, well, the chef doesn't usually put flowers on it. Like, <laughs> oh, he's in a delicate mood today. That's, you know, and um, it was just so simple and so beautiful and so real, real food. And I like that. Like a chicken, like a fucking chicken noodle soup or chicken soup would be great. Like a real, you know, you ever have like dishes that like, you order two of them because they're so delicious. I'd love to see more of that. Mm-hmm. That'd be great. Well, maybe that could be your next restaurant where you can only order two of everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. But those three accolades, which I could see being used for Julia Child, <laughs> not only the chicken soup, but simple, beautiful, real. I feel like that's what this book is. That's who you are to a lot of people. So thank you. Thank you. And uh, if you're ever in Boston... You know where to find Barbara. Hanging out <laughs> at the chamois. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Thank you again. Thanks. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Bob's Red Mill for sponsoring. Music by Cookies and David Tattashore Engineering. Thank you, Bob. Cheers. Bob's Red Mill, my favorite. <laughs> for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.